Well, good morning, and uh, happy Independence Day weekend. I hope that whatever you get to do over the next few days is an opportunity for you to express to, to God your gratitude for not only the freedom that we have here, um, but also the freedom, even more importantly than that, the freedom that we have in Christ. Glad that you're here today. My name is Nick Allen. I'm thrilled with the opportunity to get to open up God's Word as we continue our series um, about a guy named Abraham, um, which becomes really Im important for us today because his name actually switches from Abram to Abraham, which is a load off my mind because half the time when I'm supposed to say Abram, I'm saying Abraham anyway. So I start today with a story. When I was seven years old, um, and my sister was five. We played a lot with our cousins. Robin was six. She sat right there in between my younger sister, Lindsay, and I. And when we were playing at her house, Robin often, as little girls like to do, was in charge. And so at six years old, we're playing at her house, and she tells me, we're going to play house. That she's going to be the mom, I'm going to be the dad. My younger sister, Lindsay, and her little brother, Alex, who was a toddler doing whatever he wanted to do anyway, are going to be the children so she tells me, you have to go to work, which I realized in that moment, it was going to be my role as the dad in this family. And so I immediately began scheming over what job I was gonna have as a grown-up dad in this situation. And I, first off, wanted to be a garbage collector. I wanted to ride on the back of that truck, jump out from house to house, hook up the trash cans that people had left by the side of the road to that machine, which would lift them up, dump them into the, and then run down and chase the, truck and jump on the back before we got to the next house. What seven-year-old boy, or be honest, 47-year-old boy doesn't want to do just that? Robin proceeded to tell me that I could not indeed be a garbage collector, that I had to be a proctologist. <laughs> and so an argument ensued, not because I did not want to be a proctologist, but because I did not know what that was. In fact, I was quite certain that there was no such thing. As the conflict escalated, my aunt came in to see what was going on. We told her what we were arguing about and she proceeded to literally die rolling on the floor laughing at us. And then she explained what it was and no one wanted to be a proctologist. You did not know that at the beginning of church today you were gonna hear the word proctologist four times. Ultimately, that's just to break up my own internal ice um, because I needed to start off today with a word that was at least a degree more awkward than the word that I have to say for the duration of this sermon because when we looked at the timeline of who was preaching what week this summer in the life of Abraham studying through the book of Genesis, Jeff Simmons, our lead pastor, is conveniently in Moldova when we get to a chapter that's all about circumcision. <laughs> I'll probably say that word, circumcision, no fewer than 23 times throughout the duration of this message. You can keep a tally mark if you need to. And every time I say something that's awkward, I'll probably stare at the floor just as an indication, almost like a warning sign for you. Oh, he's about to say something weird so that you're kind of ready for it. Now that I've already said the word circumcision three times and all the men in the room have adjusted their knees, um, we'll dive into Genesis chapter 17 because somehow or another, this chapter's in here and it's in here for a reason. 
And the God of this great universe has something to say to us today about who we are in Christ. Yep, Christ, because even though Jesus is not mentioned anywhere in Genesis chapter 17, he's there. And together, if we look at the words of our Lord, throughout this story of a fellow named Abraham, we'll find Christ. And ultimately, we'll find a better way to follow him as a result. So we start with Genesis chapter 17 today, and these words are read. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and blamelessly. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So this is a continuation of the covenant relationship that Abraham had with God. And we know that it's not only a continuation of that covenant, because this time it's going to offer us something different. It's going to speak to us about Abraham's role within that covenant. Because you know, if you've been following along with us throughout our journey with Abraham's life, that it was in Genesis chapter 12 that a call was extended to him. And that was part of the covenant relationship, but it was all God. All God telling Abraham what he needed to do and the ways that God was going to bless him and bless all peoples through him. And then in Genesis chapter 15, a couple of weeks ago, Jeff got to talk to us about what that covenant relationship was. And in that same passage, God continued to prescribe for Abraham offspring, land, blessing, everything that God would provide as a part of that relationship. And in this moment, God comes to him with almost a new name. It's a name that only finds itself in a handful of places in scripture. If you're a person that likes to underline things in your Bible and then write out in the margins as big as they may be what words mean, underline, I am God Almighty, and write this down, it's El Shaddai. It's a name for God that matters for us. And the English translators of Bibles, they often will write God Almighty or I am God Almighty whenever they come up with the Hebrew name for God, El Shaddai. But it's a little bit of a lacking definition because it's not just God Almighty as in powerful, as in strong, as in protector, as in life giver. It certainly means that because the word Shaddai gives us a Hebrew connotation of the word mountain. And there's not a better picture of God being strong, God being provider, God being protector, God being majestic than the word mountain. God is certainly all powerful. So he comes to Abram that day and appears to him and says, I am a mountain. I am all powerful. But that word, and we don't translate it this way in English because we don't want to be awkward. It means something else. It means breast. Because God is not just an all-powerful, mighty, warrior, protector. It's a connection to a nursing mother feeding her infant because God is also all-sufficient. El Shaddai is a feminine noun. And it rightfully prescribes for us that God isn't just mighty when we need might. He's also milk when we need life. And I know that as a dad uh, of kids, I, I think of the moments when, when I'm called to be both. When my kids need me to be mighty, strong, stern, even disciplinary dad but then also the moments when they need me to be loving, tender, kind, grace-filled life giver. And there are moments in life when I certainly, as a dad, get that wrong because I don't always know the role that I need to play in any given moment, but we know that God does. He is mighty warrior, but he is all-sufficient provider. And, And we can look at the God of the universe this day and say, what is it that 
What is it that you need from the Lord today? Unpack the suitcase that you brought into this room and determine what is it that you desperately need for God to be for you today? Is it that mighty warrior? Is it that God all powerful protector? Or, or do, you, do you come to him today as, as a little kid needing provision, sustenance, life, tender care. God's covenant with Abraham was, was posterity, it was land, it was blessing, it was children. And in chapter 12, he says, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you and all people on earth will be blessed through you. And in chapter 15, verse five, he took him outside and he said, look up. Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. God continued to unpack this covenant blessing with Abraham and to determine for him all of the promises that he would receive. And in chapter 15, verse 18, he says, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, he didn't even have kids at this point, but to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt, that's the Nile River Basin, to the great river Euphrates, that's in the Fertile Crescent. That's a big chunk of real estate and God was providing it for him. Every single part of the covenant up to this point was God's part of the equation. It was all him and illustrated by the fact that when God made that covenant with Abram in Genesis chapter 15, he caused Abram to go to sleep while the presence of the Lord passed between the two halves of the bloody carcass animal because that's how covenants were made in the ancient world. Two people who desired to come together and to make a promise to one another. It wasn't a spit and a handshake. It wasn't a signature on a legally binding document. It was literally two people walking through the split open body of an animal saying to one another symbolically, may what happened to this animal happen to me if I break my promise to you. But Abram didn't have to do that with God. God did it all by himself. And we see a picture of Jesus because in the covenant relationship that we have being saved from our sins, God did all of the work. And yet here something changes about the covenant. It's not any longer just God providing this covenant relationship. There's something that will be required from Abram and, and it's something that's required from us that Abram's part of the deal was faith. Abram's part of the deal was devotion. The fact that God always keeps his promises, we have a part of the covenant blessing too. And our response to his covenant promise is always the responsibility of loyalty and devotion. Abram had a responsibility in response to what God had already done. It says in verse three, Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Abram got his name changed in Genesis chapter 17. You ever notice that pattern in Scripture? People got their names changed all the time. And the reason that mattered is because names in scripture were descriptions of who people actually were. It's as if their parents, when they named them, 
We're giving them a prophetic voice of who they would one day become as a leader, as a God follower, as an investor. And you can look throughout scripture and some of those names were aptly put who these people were. And some of us in this room, your name, if you were to look up the etymology and the meaning of your name, you would find out that that's absolutely true of you. And some of you would look it up and go, why did my parents name me that? It's because they didn't know. It's okay. (laughs) Abram means exalted father. And he spent nearly 90 years as a childless man. So that at the very mention of his name by God or whomever else he was walking with in life, every time Sarah called him in for dinner and said, Abram, dinner's ready, he would hear the stinging sound of exalted father, yet I have no son. And not only was God going to provide a son, he was going to provide a multitude of sons because his name changed before he even had children. His name changed from exalted father to father of many nations. Of my three kids, um, there's one name. I mean, I like them all. Don't tell my kids I don't like their names. But there's one that I'm maybe a little bit more proud of than the others. Um, It's probably because Susan actually let me participate in the naming of this one. Um, Before she was born, our middle child, um, we had determined that she would be named Nora. And we looked up the meaning of the name Nora and discovered that it meant light. And what a great name and what an awesome blessing to pray over her that she would live her life as a light for other people. But we didn't have a middle name and because we're good Southerners and had called our older daughter by her first and middle name collectively together, double name Lily Kate, we knew that we needed something as a middle name that we could call her together that would sound okay, genderneutralmiddlenames.com, save the day, because we got to the B's and found the name Blake. And Susan liked it, but in a moment of pregnant cynicism, she said, Psh, watch it mean dark. And that was prophetic because we looked it up and Blake indeed does mean dark. We named our kid Oxymoron, light dark. <laughs> and after the laughter subsided, we, we figured, wow, what a great name for her. Because it is our hope and prayer that she would live her life as a light in a very dark world. And Matthew 5, 16 became the life verse that we prayed over her, that she would let her light shine before men in such a way that they would see her good works and glorify who? Her father that is in heaven. Names can mean something. And, And for Abram to be called exalted father long before Ishmael came, long before Isaac would come, to be a person who heard the stinging sound of everything that you are not, Not only now is he going to be a father of a covenant child, but he's going to be the father of generations of covenant kids. And what was his response to it? Devotion. His end of the bargain was always going to be faith. And in chapter 15, we learn that God had credited his faith to him as righteousness or right standing before God. And so in Genesis 17, Abram has already been declared right standing before God. And there's a but in the equation You have to do something as a part of this. And so in verse 9 it says, As for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between you and me. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Underline that. We'll come back to it later. It's maybe the most important part of this entire passage. Whether born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh man, flesh is in the Bible a whole, whole lot, will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. There was a, an obedient response required from Abram. And it was the idea of circumcision. Why the eighth day? Like, why does that matter? Any mom in the room will tell you, well, that's because that's when vitamin K came into the picture. And what she may not know, maybe what she does know, is that in 1935, a professor named vitamin K for the factor that helped prevent hemorrhaging in baby chicks. We know that vitamin K is now responsible by the liver for the production of the element known as prothrombin. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but that's okay. You get the point. Vitamin K coupled with prothrombin causes blood coagulation, which is important in any surgical procedure. But what you don't know is that on the eighth day, after three to five days of life producing this element, the amount of prothrombin present is actually elevated above 100% normal. And that is the only day in the male's life in which this will be the case under normal circumstances. Today, we just give baby boys a shot so that they'll have that vitamin K going through their veins earlier than the eighth day. But back then, it mattered that they wait a week. A doctor, Dr. McMillan observed, 1984, we should commend the many hundreds of workers who labored at great expense over a number of years to discover that the safest day to perform circumcision is the eighth. Yet as we congratulate medical science for this recent finding, we can almost hear the leaves of the Bible rustling. They would like to remind us that 4,000 years ago, when God initiated circumcision with Abraham, it wasn't Abraham who picked the eighth day after many centuries of trial and error experiments. Neither he nor any of his company from the ancient city of Ur and the Chaldeans had ever been circumcised before. It was a day picked by the creator of vitamin K. God had determined that there would be a specific day prescribed as the best day for circumcising males. But, but again, why circumcision in general? It, it mattered. But we have to be careful because circumcision was not the covenant. It was the sign of the covenant. And, and that word sign matters to us because it's the Hebrew word oath. And this is not the first time or the only time that it'll appear in scripture because that word oath literally means sign, distinguishing mark or indication. So in this moment, the, the sign of someone's covenant relationship with God was if his own blood was shed, if his own flesh was cut, if his own blood was spilt. And, and generations later after all of Abraham's descendants had spent 400 years enslaved in Egypt and a rescuer named Moses came. He prescribed for them another sign. It's that at midnight they would slaughter a lamb and they would take the blood of that lamb and they would paint it on the door frames of their houses so that when the destroyer angel came into the midst, it would attack Egypt but spare Israel. And in Exodus chapter 12, we learned that that blood was to be a 
sign, a distinguishing mark, something that set you apart. And then you fast forward into the future when they're wandering around in the wilderness and God gives them this law. It's no longer their own shed blood, that's a sign. It's no longer the shed of an innocent lamb, that's a sign. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God gives his people a special word that they are to obey. He says to them, these words, these commands that I give you are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you lie down and when you wake up and when you walk along the road and when you recline around the table. Tie them as symbols, signs on your foreheads and on your gates. It was no longer your own shed blood that became a sign of the covenant. It was no longer an animal's shed blood that became a sign of protection. Now it's the very word of God that is a sign for us. And when Moses and all his people heard that the blood was to be a sign or that the words were to be a sign, they hearkened back to their history with Father Abraham and circumcision being a sign. It's a sign indicating the relationship that we have with God. By, by nature, the word covenant means cutting. Well, yeah, for sure, because circumcision is definitely cutting. But it also means consuming. It's the word berit. And it literally means an alliance, and it means to eat. And why in the world would those two things go together? Because, because of this, in the ancient world, for two people to share a meal meant that they shared a relationship. It meant that they shared an alliance. And so it makes sense that for us, that the covenant sign of circumcision is both cutting and consuming because it indicates a relationship. Circumcision is not the covenant. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Circumcision is also not a condition, but it's an act of submission. In Romans chapter 2, Paul does a far better job explaining the importance of circumcision than I ever could. He says in verse 28 of Romans chapter 2, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Circumcision wasn't what earned Abraham righteousness. It wasn't a condition of the covenant, but it was an act of submission to the covenant. Why circumcision? Because it connects an inward change to an outward expression. Circumcision is an outward physical sign. It's a physical act of obedience but as far as signs go, it's kind of personal. As far as I can tell in the canon of Scripture, males weren't required to go around proving it. That, now you talk about awkward. And if we were to take a survey in here, don't worry, we won't. Of all of the males in this room, stare at the floor, Nick, stare at the floor, Nick, stare at the floor. <laughs> who have been circumcised and we raised our hands, I'm just going to take your word for it. We're just going to trust that you're telling the truth with no proof necessary. And in some ways, 
Circumcision of the heart is similar. Because a person in this room can declare themselves a Christ follower, can declare themselves a believer in Jesus, someone who has submitted to the authority of this word, someone who has understood that Christ was crucified for our sins and that on the third day he rose again, indicating a victory over death that we can accomplish only through our confession of faith in him. Someone can declare themselves to be a Christian and for the most part, If you've been a proud recipient of a ticket into heaven, we're going to just have to take your word for it. In some ways, circumcision is an outward physical sign, but it's also a very private, personal matter. Circumcision as a symbol goes a little bit further because it's literally a cutting away of flesh. And and we know what flesh was symbolic of throughout Scripture. It was symbolic of sin. My fleshy desires, my agenda, my will, my perspective. And, And Scripture reminds us over and over again that we are not to be a people of the flesh, but to be a people who live according to the Spirit. It is not an accident. I can't wrap my mind around this, but it is not an accident that Ishmael, the kid who was not a part of God's chosen covenant people, was a product of Abraham's uncircumcised seed. It is also not an accident that the kid Isaac, who we'll see in coming weeks, who was to be part of God's chosen covenant people, was a product of Abraham's newly circumcised seed. So what does it mean for us today? What's our connection point to this idea of spiritual circumcision? In some ways, it's patience. In some ways, it's patience. After the promise was made to Abraham and after the circumcision was prescribed to him, he Hearing the news of having a son through Sarah, he laughed and said in verse 18 to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Why not him? Why not this kid that I've been raising for what we will discover 13 years? He's the son you gave me. This is the most obvious solution to the dilemma over whether or not I could be the father of nations. I'll just do it through him. And so enter the idea of patience because you and I can relate to Abraham in this moment for sure because we have a problem waiting 13 minutes or 13 hours or 13 days for God to show up and be the provider of his promise, much less 13 years. How about 99 years? Part of what we can understand through this relationship of Abraham and circumcision is patience. More than a decade had passed since God had made a covenant promise relationship with Abraham and a son still hadn't been given. The son still hadn't come. A lot of people want to connect the idea of circumcision to baptism today and there are some obvious connection points. Both are outward expressions of an inward reality Both express a a commitment and a faith. And that that may be our greatest point of connection today. Circumcision doesn't 
cut off our sin any more than baptism washes it away. They're just symbols of a reality that's already happened when a person commits themselves to Christ. We have to separate circumcision and baptism when it comes to timeline, though, because circumcision coming on the eighth day to an infant was not to a child that raised their hand and said, hey, don't forget to cut. I don't even know where to go from there. That was a decision and an act of the parents. And at Rolling Hills today, we practice believer's baptism, which is an obedient decision of the individual being baptized, not the mom and dad baptizing an infant as a symbol of the covenant commitment that they're making to raise their child to be a part of a family of God, but instead the believer himself submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ in life saying, I want to be a follower of him. And right now, as someone who has confessed my sins to God and received his gift of salvation, I'll surely go under some water to indicate to others what has happened already inside their symbols. But infant circumcision parts ways with believer's baptism in the same way that infant baptism does. One is an act of obedience by the actual believer, and one is a symbol prescribed by a mom and dad who desire to raise that child to become an actual believer. Ultimately, again, our greatest connection with this is, is not just patience, but it's an obedient timeline because God commanded Abraham to submit to a physical act of obedience only after he was already declared bound to God through a covenant. Righteousness was declared in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Righteousness was declared two whole chapters and more than 10 years before obedience was required. Paul summed that up for us too in Romans chapter 4 verse 9. He said, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before, Paul writes. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Uncircumcised Abraham was declared righteous before God two chapters and more than 10 years before he was required to act obediently to it. Patience and obedience... They go together. And for us, when my heart is circumcised, it's impatience and disobedience that are being cut away so that I can more aptly and readily follow God with my life. Timing couldn't be better today than to carve out just a portion of this message to celebrate um, the life of one of the most patient and most obedient people I know. It's our preschool minister, Anna Townsend. I'm gonna invite her to join me. Yay, that's good. You can clap if you feel like it. Um, you clap now, but when I tell you what I'm gonna tell you, you're gonna wanna clap again in a minute because tomorrow, um, many of you already know this and many of you are gonna be like, what? I didn't know. Um, Anna leaves for a month-long missionary journey um, to Brazil um, to serve with our Justice and Mercy international missionaries who reside there and serve the people along the Amazon River. 
Um, and, and I can't think of a, a better story for us to be in than the life of Abram turned to Abraham, a man to be called to go, um, a man to be called to experience what God has for him, um, than the way that that story mirrors Anna's life as someone who is patiently waiting on God to speak and then obediently answering when he does. And so this comes after a really long journey because what you don't know about the last year of Anna's life is that in addition to being the preschool minister at Rolling Hills for like, I don't know, 100 hours a week, she's also been taking Portuguese classes to ready herself for this journey and this experience. And she goes into this um, asking God, what is it that you would have me do for you? Um, And how does this heart for the people of the Amazon fit into that? And so we wanna take just a moment as a part of our service today Um, not just today, but in the upcoming weeks um, to continue to pray blessings over her as she goes and serves. Oh yeah, you can clap again. (laughs) But also join with me as we pray. Father, thank you for this day. Um, And thank you for the life of my friend and my sister that we celebrate and her obedient answer to your call to go, um, to see the nations come to know you. And Father, I pray for her over the next month as she serves the people in the villages all along the Amazon River as she serves and supports our missionaries um, and our staff members for JMI who live there and serve there ongoing. Father, I pray that you would teach her. Uh, And Father, I pray that you would use her. And Father, I pray that Christ would be glorified in her and that people would see Jesus because of her. And Father, I pray that as she goes, you would remind us every single day of the call that we all have to be who you've called us to be and to serve where you called us to serve for the advancement of your kingdom on this earth. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and celebrate today. Amen. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks. It's a a celebratory moment, um, and it fits here um, because she's patiently waited for this day, and now she answers obediently the call that God has in her life to go. The greatest bottom line truth that we could celebrate from Genesis chapter 17 today is a part that points us to Jesus. It's that covenant was accomplished, righteousness was declared, forgiveness was offered long before our obedience was ever required. But there's another vocabulary word that's nestled in here and we don't wanna leave today without talking about it. In Genesis chapter 17, we can't skip over her. It's in verse 15, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. That sounds just like in verse six when he said, I will make you very fruitful. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. That sounds just like verse six when he said to Abraham, I will make nations of you. Kings of people will come from her. That sounds just like the promise he made to Abraham in verse six. And kings will come from you. This is the first time when the covenant relationship that God had with Abraham was extended to Abraham's wife. When as an ancient city woman, she became part of a covenant relationship that God determined to have with people. The women in the room should be excited that long before Paul wrote that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, God was already at work making a very prominent matriarchal place for a woman in his chosen family of people. But it's not just, it's not just a covenant that includes her. It's one that includes us 
we're in here. We're in here because we read in verse 12, for generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. And when Abraham obediently submitted to God in circumcision, him and his son Ishmael in verse 26 were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. It's not just Sarah included in the covenant, it's us. I'm not Jewish. I can't trace my lineage and my heritage and my biology all the way back to a fellow named Abraham. But I know that as Paul wrote in the book of Romans that we can be grafted into faith. It is not only those who are circumcised. It is not only those who are Israel who are Israel, but those who are grafted in, adopted into the family of God who have experienced a circumcision of the heart who can be bought in faith by the blood of Jesus. It wasn't just the New Testament that offered us a place there. Jesus has been there offering grace to nations from the beginning when he said, those who are not your offspring can be part of this covenant. We're there. We're included. And we're not included because we obey. We're included just like Abraham because we have faith and our faith in Jesus will be credited to us as righteousness before God and then our obedience will follow that declaration of righteousness. At Rolling Hills, we call a disciple a growing follower of Jesus Christ. And don't even get me started about how important it is that we tack on Christ to the end of that because I'm not following a good moral teacher. I'm following the son of the living God, the Messiah who came to earth to save me from my sins. And what is a growing follower? It's a believer who is taking intentional steps towards Christ-likeness and investing in others to do the same. Step one in discipleship is to identify with Jesus. He's who we put our faith in, not in our physical cutting, but in his physical cutting, not in our bloody wounds, but in his bloody wounds. Righteousness comes through faith. Obedience comes in response. And that's the declaration that we make today. I put at the beginning of your notes, 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, no matter how many promises God has made, no matter how many promises God made to Abram, no matter how many covenant promises he made to Abraham, no matter how those covenant promises were transmitted from generation to generation to generation, all leading up to Jesus, those covenant promises all find their yes in him. When a people like you and me who are not Abraham's biological offspring are invited to be a part of the covenant relationship that God made with him, you and I get to be a part of it. And that comes through salvation in Jesus. It's not what we do, but what he did. And our faith in it that matters. And our righteousness, like Abraham's, will be credited to us through faith long before our obedience to that faith is ever required. Oh, but once we've been transformed by Jesus, may we willingly and longingly step up 
and be a people who desire to obediently follow him.